Thank you, Louise. Uh, good morning, everyone. Please uh, keep your Bibles open uh, to Isaiah 55, uh, 65 and 66. Uh, and let me add my welcome to Dave's. It's great to see you all here this morning and to be, get, be together as we look at this last of the uh, of Isaiah series that we've been working through, which has uh, been epic. Another big passage today, and uh, hopefully God will help us understand uh, his word to us this morning. Let's pray together. Uh, gracious God, thank you so much for what you have been teaching us, all that we have learnt as we have been able to listen to your word. Father, help us to listen to your word again this morning, that we might be those who are known by you. Help us, Lord God, to um, put aside the distractions of our lives that will no doubt be with us this morning uh, because they don't seem to leave us. But please help us to be able to put them aside now as we listen to you speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I want to uh, try and save you from some unnecessary pain and anxiety today, if I can, although I am aware that for some of you, as I look out there, I may be too late, uh, but for others, I may be able to help. Now, that is, some people think it's inevitable, but I want to say that there's no need for you to have a midlife crisis. See, half the congregation I've missed already. But anyway, um, but that's good news, isn't it? That's good news. Uh, uh, you might want to say, well, what is a midlife crisis? If you're young enough not to know that, that's uh, good. Uh, it, it's a, they say that it's a loss of self-confidence and feeling of anxiety or disappointment that can occur in early middle age. Uh, now, you may question the things that you've chosen to, de to dedicate your life to, uh, or maybe your goals and plans don't seem to make sense anymore. Uh, the professionals... Uh, describes some of the symptoms like this. They say, you feel hopeless about your future. You feel the need for a new schedule or habit or challenge. You obsess over how you look. You experience bouts of depression, remorse or anxiety. You entertain obsessive thoughts about death or dying. Uh, one common belief about this stage of life is that you should expect to face inner turmoil about your identity, life choices and mortality. Ego friends, a midlife crisis. Uh, and so as a solution, people will try to feel youthful again as they struggle to come to terms with the fact that their lives are half over. Uh, welcome to my world. Um, now, I do want to confess that a few years back, I did have a midlife crisis for a couple of hours. Uh, but then I read my Bible. Um, and I, can I suggest that the passage that we're reading here this morning is a good one to put things in perspective. Uh, to get our head in the right space, so to speak. Because if you're a Christian, if you understand this book of God's prophet Isaiah, then you have, you have the vaccine that is 100% effective against midlife crises. Uh, because today, not only are we coming to the conclusion of this life-changing book of Isaiah, but we are being shown the conclusion and the outcome of all of history, and even more, all eternity. Listen again to what God says in the first couple of verses in the section that we're looking at this morning from 65. Let me just pick it up again at verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. See, God is doing something that will cause those who belong to him to rejoice forever. It's a promise 
that puts the whole of our lives now into perspective. Now, a little while ago, uh, one preacher, Francis Chan, used an illustration to put our lives now into perspective with the new heavens and the new earth that God has promised. And he got a length of rope uh, that was so long that nobody could see the end of it. I don't think you can see that there on this picture. But at the one end, what you can see, he painted the last few centimetres of the rope red. And that little red section represented life now, uh, our world as it exists now that God promises is coming to an end. It's a very short part. Whereas the rest of the rope that seemed to be endless is the new heavens and the new earth that are going to continue forever. God's people have an eternity to look forward to. But it's not just length of time. If it was going to be anything like our world is now, then we wouldn't want it to go on forever. Ask a Ukrainian if they want this world to go on forever. So the great difference is that this is going to be an existence of unbridled gladness and joy forever. So that the former things, the struggles and the hardships of this world, the injustices, whatever they might be, will not even be remembered. That is what God wants us to know and understand. The new heavens and new earth are what we are to fix our eyes on. They are what we are to live for. They are what we are to behold. Behold our God, Isaiah has been saying to us over and over again, and he says now, behold the new creation that awaits us. That's what Isaiah is wanting us to lift our eyes to see and to understand. But so often, we're obsessed with the now, uh, with the things of this world that are coming to an end. And so if we do that, then we haven't understood Isaiah rightly. Uh, we haven't understood the Bible rightly. Sorry, my pages are getting stuck together this morning. Uh, there is, what well, Isaiah is wanting to tell us, that there is a future beyond this world. It's not vague. It's not pie in the sky when we die. It's real. It's tangible. It's physical. And more, what Isaiah is telling us here is that it's joyful, it's relational, it's, it's purposeful, and it's just so good. Now have a look at the imagery that Isaiah uses to help us grasp just how good it's going to be. Look at from, from the second part of verse 18 there in chapter 65. He says, For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. And it's worth pointing out that the Jerusalem that he is creating is the new Jerusalem. It's not the earthly rebellious city that has not listened to God, who have gone their own way. Although it will certainly include Jewish people who have repented of their sin and put their trust in the suffering servant. But it's a place of perfect relationship with God. He will delight in his people, we're told. It's a place of relational joy with God and with each other. How good will that be? And isn't it our relationships that are our source of greatest joy, happiness, or very sadly, some of our most gut-wrenching sadnesses? I was deeply disturbed just a couple of weeks ago to hear that there has been a massive increase in elderly parents coming towards the end of their lives completely estranged from their children. It's a tragedy, isn't it? But here, there are no more tears. 
No more cries of distress. And death will never darken our doors again either. Uh, even the poetic language at the end of verse 20 that speaks of a man dying at 100 years old being considered young, it's not saying that there will be death, but rather that if there were, it would be extraordinary. We know from places like Isaiah 25 and 26 or Revelation 21 that we've just read that death will not exist in the new heavens and the new earth. No more tears, no more cries of distress over anything. It's hard for us to wrap our heads around how wonderful the new heavens and earth will be, isn't it? But read on because verses 21 and 22 speak of things like stability, uh, security, confidence, endless enjoyment. Look at this. Verse 21, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And without going into detail, because time doesn't allow it, verses 23 to 25 speak of things like peace, like contentment, no fear, the attentive care of our heavenly Father, and in fact, harmony throughout all of God's creation. See, here was God's promise to Israel, even as they languished under the God's rightful judgment, to be exiled in Babylon if they would turn back to him. Here is his promise. And here is God's promise to us today. I mean, next term we'll be working through uh, 1 Peter in the New Testament. And in it, the Apostle Peter reminds Christians that the world as we know it now is not our home. We're exiles in a world in rebellion against God and facing his judgment. This is not our home. The new heavens and the new earth is our true home. That is where we belong. Before we move on to reflect on this glorious new creation some more. I want to remind us where we've been in these last two major sections of Isaiah as we come to the end of this series. Where have we been? Because Isaiah is not just a message for Israel and Jerusalem. It's a message from God for the whole world. God's dealing with the nation of Israel is a picture or a model of how God deals with the whole world in our rebellion against him. Now we've seen, haven't we, over the last term that there are two big things uh, happening in the book of, of Isaiah. First, uh, we've seen that the Jerusalem of Isaiah's day is a complete mess. Despite God's goodness towards them as his people, uh, they are overwhelmingly wicked and rebellious. And so God has promised to judge them by sending them into exile in Babylon. Now, it's a punishment that is both catastrophic but absolutely deserved. And then secondly, running right alongside that, Isaiah has given a picture of a new Jerusalem that's absolutely glorious and wonderful. It's a place where God himself would dwell with his people. And so the big question has been throughout Isaiah, in the words, if I can steal, of David Jackman's, how will the holy, faithful God make his unholy, faithless city into his holy, faithful city? You've heard it again and again, I think. And there's been this massive tension going on. And the great problem that stands between these two things, as we've seen in the kids' talk this morning, is sin. Israel's rebellion against God. Because that at heart is what sin is. It's rebellion against God. And of course, we, we all suffer the same disease. We all deserve God's judgment. It's the great dilemma that the final two sections of Isaiah have been answering. And firstly, we've seen in chapters 40 through to 55 that Isaiah has answered the question, how does God save? 
And the answer given so powerfully, particularly in chapter 53 of Isaiah, is that salvation is possible only through the work of God's suffering servant, through Jesus. Forgiveness of sins comes only through the one who was pierced for our transgression, who was crushed for our iniquities, the one on whom God's judgment fell so that we could have peace with God. See, it's only through the suffering of Jesus on the cross that judgment is paid for, that sin is dealt with and forgiveness offered. See, that's how God saves. But the question that remained was, who does God save? And this final section of Isaiah from chapters 56 to 66 answers that question. Who is in and who is out of God's glorious new city? See, who are God's people who will take their place in the new heavens and the new earth? Well, the opening sentences of chapter 66, I think, make it very clear. Uh, we've been seeing it through the last 10 chapters, but have a look here from verse 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Now, you might remember last week, Andy cautioned us uh, to make sure that we know who the real Jesus is before we, we, we go, and go to put our trust in him. And it's the same thing here. If you're going to respond to God rightly, then you better be clear about who he is. He is the Lord who sits enthroned as creator and ruler of everything. And here is what God is looking for in us. Let me just read on there. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Now, a contrite spirit is a repentant spirit. It's aware of the damage that sin does. It recognises its own sin and admits its own failures and is sorry for them. And we saw back in chapter 59, those whom God saves are those who repent of their sins, who turn back from their rebellion against God. To be saved is not simply trusting in Jesus. It's to both repent of your sin and trust Jesus who paid the penalty for your sin. And can I say, it's only the humble who are willing to do that. Proud people are rarely willing to admit their failures or to own up to them and seek forgiveness. And what a proud nation we are. We've been idolising pride for decades now. We celebrate the arrogant for believing in themselves and not letting anyone tell them what to do. Pride is the fundamental sin from where all others follow. I mean, right from the very beginning, uh, when Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden believed the devil's lie that they could become like God and so therefore determine their own destinies. And look at what we've done to the glorious world that God originally created. And so if we are to be welcomed into God's glorious new heavens and earth, then this is the one to whom God will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. I mean, to tremble at God's word is, is not uh, so much to be afraid of it as it is to revere it. It's the same as the Bible's teaching that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To listen to God and to trust him and to live his way is a life of blessing and freedom. See, our attitude to God's word is our attitude to God himself. 
What we think of God's word is what we think of God. How we treat God's word is how we treat God. And so if you ignore God's word, if you think you know better than God's word, if you willfully disobey God's word without repentance, then you should be afraid because God will not let the guilty go unpunished. See, the problem with Israel is that they would not listen to God and accept his free offer of salvation. And as we've seen over and again, they continued in their religious rituals, expecting God to owe them something. But God doesn't need, as we've already seen, he doesn't need human temples. He doesn't need religious works. Look at verse 3 there. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. These verses are actually quite shocking, aren't they? I mean, he who slaughters an ox is like a murderer. And that is, a good practicing Jew is like a murderer if they don't listen to me, God says. If you're not listening to me, Israel, you're as bad as the worst Gentiles. It's shocking what uh, is being said here. Even those in Israel are out if they don't listen to God. God can't be manipulated. Their religious sacrifices don't mask their wicked hearts. And see verse 4, I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. See, no religious practice, no good deed in the hope that God will notice can substitute for a humble and contrite heart spirit that deeply reveres God's word. Only God can save. Only God can restore. Only God can bring new life. Only God can raise up a people that belong to him who will live and enjoy him forever. And that's the point, I think, of the, of the next section that we didn't read from verses 7 to 14. Uh, let me just read a little bit of, of it there from verse 7. Before she was in labour, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labour, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I, who cause to bring forth, shut the womb, says, says your God? Now Zion, or Jerusalem, same thing, uh, is described as a mother giving birth here. Without the pain of labour, uh, in an instant not simply to a child, but to a whole swathe of children. Notice the image here is of God creating a new people, a new nation. Uh, out of old covenant Israel, the new people of God are born. In other words, this is a picture of the church that includes the faithful remnant of Israel, but also people from every nation. And so from verses 10 to 14 here, out of this mother-like Jerusalem, God brings great blessing and joy to his people whom he loves and delights in. I'm just going to look at the highlights. Look at verse 10 there. There's, there's rejoicing that comes. 
In verse 11, they drink deeply with delight. Or verse 12, there is peace and glory. Verse 13, comfort. And verse 14, there's more rejoicing, but notice also there is justice. And read on in verse 15 and 16. Look, he says, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire the Lord will enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Now there is great joy to be part of God's people, but we cannot skip over the fact that to rebel against God and to refuse to listen to him is to face his terrifying judgment. We do no one any favours, can I say, to speak only of the great goodness of God and the wonderful joy of, for those who belong to him, but if we don't also warn of the devastating reality of God's judgment. God is a gracious God. He's a merciful God. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's a God, remember, who has sent his own beloved son into the world to die on a cross to save us. That's the God who he is. He's a God who is holding out his arms of welcome even now, inviting everyone to come back to him. But he will not allow wickedness to go unpunished forever. And we see it again there in verses 17 and verse 24. I'm not going to read it, but you can see it in those passages. But in these last few verses of chapter 66, sorry, yeah, of chapter 66, the focus here is on God's glory and on his salvation. In verses 18 to 19, we're, we're told this. The time is coming, he says, to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and they shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. See, God would set up a sign by which he would gather people from all nations and languages. In other words, one day God would do something that will point to the fact that he can judge and that he can save. Now, for, for Isaiah, that time lay in the future, for you and I, we actually look back on that, to that sign, that is, to the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Listen to what Jesus himself says about his death in John chapter 12, verses 27 to 33. It should be there on the screen for you. Uh, because here in this passage, Jesus is speaking both to his disciples and to a great crowd of people just before uh, he's going to be arrested and crucified. And look at what he says. He says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. You see, here is the unmistakable sign that Jesus is both judge and saviour of the world. And it's the sign that displays God's glory. It's a glory that is seen in his grace and his mercy and his love of sinners, he offers salvation and forgiveness even to his enemies. 
And he wants the nations to know that there is salvation in no other name but the name of Jesus. And notice that God has a plan in these final few verses of Isaiah to send people to the nations. Just as Isaiah, who saw God's glory back in chapter 6, Isaiah received God's forgiveness and was sent with God's plan of salvation to Israel, now God is sending those of us who have seen God's glory in the cross of Jesus to share that glorious news with every nation on earth. Have a look at verse 19. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. Now the the various nations mentioned here are just, if you like, representative of nations in the, the farthest reaches of our world. God wants to be known by all people everywhere. And God's salvation is for everyone who repents of their sin and believes in Jesus, which means that CMS, the Church Missionary Society, are right to train up and send our people to the nations of the earth with the saving message about Jesus. Howard and Tricia Spencer are right to spend the years that they could be using to slow down and take it easy to instead head to Belgium, help out the fledgling university ministry there get off the ground. Josh and Nikki are right to head overseas to a difficult place to share the good news of Jesus. But so is Seth and Dave Dorman, who work with the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Students to help spread the good news of Jesus across university campuses throughout Australia. And so is Randall and Paul and and Neil, who have taken time off work to do some theological study at Moore College to better equip themselves to serve Christ here. So is Tony, who has decided not to work at her chosen profession for her entire life so she could serve the local church rather than earn an income and make a name for herself in the world. Or Zoe or Rachmar, or Kevin and Tracy, or Roger or Lara or others I could mention who reduce their work hours or take time off work so that they can serve Christ and us in making Christ known. Or perhaps it's you who goes to work or to uni or to school or raises your kids and at the same time prays for your friends and colleagues and asks God to give you opportunities to speak to them about Jesus. Praise God for those people and those like them. Pray for them as they serve Christ and prayerfully consider yourself how you can be like them. Because can I say that so much worse than a midlife crisis is the person who gets to the end of their life and in their pride refuse to humble themselves before God and to listen to his word of forgiveness. That's a tragedy. Because God's judgment is real and it's terrifying. We don't want anyone to face that, do we? But only those who hear the message about Jesus, the suffering servant who humbly tremble at God's word, they are the ones who will be in that glorious new city, the new heavens and earth that God is creating. Now we know we're not there yet. We still live in a world of sinful pride where people will not listen to God. They may even mock us for listening to God. And that, of course, makes life hard at times, especially as we live out a genuine Christian life. But I want us to end this series in Isaiah 
rejoicing. Rejoicing in our glorious future that is certain and assured. I mean, most conferences that I've been to recently have been reminding me of the grief and pain that we're experiencing living in this sinful, broken world. That is good and helpful, can I say. It is right and good to be aware of how to live well in our world and to understand the times that we live in. But I think that one of Isaiah's grand purposes is to do exactly the same thing by helping us to fix our eyes on the glorious and certain future that is ours. We chose the title Behold because we we all need to capture afresh the great glory of God. Isaiah calls us to it all the time. The glory of God, the grandeur of his grace and the unending joy that is ours for all eternity in Jesus. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. Friends, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful grace and mercy that you have shown to us through your suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, you are a patient God. You're a God who loves us in ways that we don't understand. Father, thank you that you have given us your word and you call us to listen because as we come before you with contrite hearts, trembling at your word, understanding it, listening to it, obeying it, Father, we have the great hope, the great promise that we are those who belong in the new heavens and the earth. And Father, as we seek to live for you now, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Keep our eyes fixed on the future that is certain and sure and help us to lift our eyes to behold your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.